well, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have with us Dr. Ben Witherington III. Dr. Witherington, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Well, I thought maybe we would start out just by talking about your work kind of uh, broadly. You do a lot of work in the area of social history. Is that yep. uh, that's a fair way to describe it? Sure, absolutely. I also do some work in social scientific evaluation of the New Testament. And, of course, rhetoric. Um, you know, I'm more than anything interested in the rhetorical analysis of the New Testament. But I come at all of these things as a historian. So in the first place, I'm very concerned about history and, you know, that whole thing. And so the first question that a historian would ask is questions like, what kind of rhetoric do we see the writers of the New Testament using? And what kind of social history do these texts manifest? Yeah, that's helpful. Um, well, and maybe help our audience who may be a little less familiar with some of the academic terminology understand when you say social history, how is that different than, say, the history classes we had in high school? Well, it's not military history. It's the history of ordinary life. Mm. So it would be the history of family relationships, cultural values, those sorts of things. Uh, you know, I mean, um, ancient cultures have cultural values that are very different from our own. I mean, the, the biblical cultures were all honor and shame cultures, which America certainly is not. So, you know, for them, the top value in their ethical hierarchy in many cases would be to obtain honor and to avoid shame, especially public shame. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's a value that really isn't at the core of American values, um, most cultures have one of several possible top values in their ethical hierarchy. In America, the top value is clearly life and death. We even have a cliché. Well, it's not a matter of life and death. But that would not have been the top value in the ethical hierarchy of the ancient Jewish people. Or, um, you know, There were plenty of things they were prepared to die for, which shows that there were other values more important to them than life or death. Hmm. And uh, so... You know, we try to evaluate these ancient cultures according to the way they are, not the way we would like them to have been. Another good example would be these are uh, cultures that are don't have democracies. They don't have free market capitalism. They are barter cultures. They are reciprocity cultures. They are patron and client cultures. And so in many ways, they are very different from, from our culture, to say the least. And... Of course, they are profoundly patriarchal cultures to a degree that we could hardly imagine in America. Hmm. Um, so there are a lot of ways that the, the basic day-to-day -day social life, the structure of the family, I mean, the families were arranged marriages. Girls were engaged at 12 or 13 as soon as they became pubescent. These, these cultures were very different from ours, and these New Testament books manifest the culture in which they're immersed. So, um, you know, a, a better knowledge of the social history prevents anachronism reading into the Bible, things that aren't there. Yeah, that's great. I, I think most of us, when we think of history, we think military, political, national level history. It, it can be harder to find good resources on the social details, I think. Um, but one of the reasons I started this podcast was to try to dig into the, the social context of the Bible. Um, and so I think the work of scholars like you has been really important uh, for Christians to uh, understand that world better. Right. 
Right. You know, they say the past is like a foreign country. Yeah. They do things differently there. And if you don't study the Bible in its original context, you are bound to read your own cultural values and your own society back into the Bible. I mean, a good example of this would be the modern money gurus like Dave Ramsey, who thinks that the way the ancient system of economy worked was the same as the way our economy worked, and so uh, it's always a good thing to be out of debt. Well, in fact, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible actually says there's a place for true self-sacrifice where you put yourself in debt for the sake of others. So, I mean, there are basic assumptions that are brought to the reading of the New Testament in our own age, which are, in fact, in disagreement with what the Bible says on these very important subjects. Yeah. Yeah, one of your books that I've read most recently was Making a Meal of It, about the Lord's Supper. Yep. And you, yep. have, you have a quote in there that I thought kind of summed up why I have found this to be so important. You said, the less Jewish the approach one takes to the Lord's Supper, the more likely one is to be wrong about one's assessment of the elements. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, you know, the big debate among New Testament scholars is, was that meal a Passover meal? Because on any normal showing, if it happened Thursday night, it happened before Passover. And of course, none of the Gospel accounts mention a lamb, which is a little odd. And yet, and yet, Mark in particular characterizes the meal as a Passover meal. Hmm. So what's exactly going on there? Well, what we know about Passover meals is that they are meals with symbolic elements. The, the bitter herbs represent the bitterness of bondage, in Egypt, you know, the bread of haste, the bread without leaven, represents the fact that they had to leave the land quickly, those sorts of things. In other words, there are symbolic elements, right? So when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, the reason the disciples didn't scream and immediately run out of the room, assuming he <laughs> meant cannibalism, is precisely because they were quite familiar with a religiously symbolic meal, with symbolic elements in it. Hmm. And they would have assumed, even if they did not fully understand, that he was symbolically interpreting the elements like would be normal in yeah. a Passover meal. So um, the further we get away from that Jewish context, the less we really understand what's going on in the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And, uh, and the more apt we are to turn it into some sort of magical occasion or something else yeah so this this book making a meal of it it's part of a series i think you've done of uh shorter maybe at least shorter by your standards uh books that are digging into some early christian practices like baptism and then the lord's supper so with that series of books who who is your primary intended audience i mean who did you think of writing for with with those books well um, you know, I'm, almost all of my books are written at what I would call a mid-level. It, it engages with the scholarship, but it's written for pastors, educated lay people, seminary students, college students, that sort of thing, right? Right. Um, so I, I don't write strictly technical, talking only to the guild kind of commentaries or books, yeah. because I would like to reach as broad an audience as I possibly could. Right. Which, you know, I mean, the average scholar writing strictly scholarly books 
you know, might <laughs> in the course of his career sell 15 or 20,000 books. And that's a good example, yeah. right? <laughs> um, my books have served lots of churches and lots of pastors and lots of lay people. And I, there have probably been a half million books I've sold. Yeah. So there's a big difference. In, I mean, you have to understand who your audience is and who you're writing to. And uh, so that's why I take that kind of approach. Yeah. Um, I, I, I taught a class on First Corinthians at my church a little while back, and my, my main source was your social rhetorical commentary on First and Second Corinthians. And it, it certainly goes very deep, but it was accessible. Um, I, I also read The Week in the Life of Corinth, which was much more of a um, easy read, I suppose you could say, because it was a, a fictional yeah. narrative. Sure, sure. So, I mean, for me, it's not about boiling down the concepts to a bare nub and ex stripping the meat out of the discussion. It's about clarity. You can explain difficult concepts if you are clear. And what I always find is let's not insult the intelligence of the audience, which unfortunately often happens from the pulpit. Mm. It, things get watered down and they get dumbed down. And, you know, the real gift is the ability to distill uh, even complicated concepts to any level of discourse. Yeah. That's the real gift. Yeah. And that's what I try to do. Well, and you've written commentaries on every single book of the New Testament, if I yep. got that right. So I, do you have a favorite, or are they sort of like children, where you have to love them all equally? <laughs> well, I, I love them all, but the, the ones I enjoy teaching the most would be Romans and the Gospel of John. I have mm. the most fun teaching those two. Yeah, so I, I wanted to dig into making a meal of it, and this, yeah, at least maybe to to most of my audience, will probably sound like it has almost nothing to do with the Lord's Supper, but I have to say, talking about the Gospel of John, you sort of blew my mind in that book with the idea that that could have been written at least mostly by Lazarus. Yes. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you're a historian, internal evidence always trumps external evidence because it's primary, yeah. right? So later ascriptions as to who may or may not have written that Gospel are later ascriptions. I mean, the Gospel begins with verse 1. So strictly speaking, it's anonymous, right? The fact that we have a label slapped on it later called the Gospel of John is not part of the inspired text starting with 1-1 and going to the end of the book. Yeah. It's a later Christian evaluation. Yeah. Now, I happen to think there's a reason for that. I think John of Patmos, who wrote the book of Revelation, was the final editor of this material on behalf of the beloved disciple. I think he was part of the same community in Ephesus. Yep. So that's that's what I would say about that. But the internal evidence, for me anyway, is compelling. I mean, for instance, let's just take some examples. It, these are oral cultures. So people will be listening to these stories, seriatim, as they're told, right? Well, where is the first place? that we hear about a disciple whom Jesus loves in the whole gospel. Well, nowhere in the first ten chapters. The very first announcement of that theme is in John 11, where the sisters of Lazarus send a, an emergency note, you know, a text to Jesus saying, the one whom you love is ill. And the very next verse identifies the one whom you love as Lazarus. Now, it's right there in the text. And it can't be any accident that it's only after 
John 11, that we hear the phrase, the beloved disciple. Not before, only after. So that's point number one. But then you start looking at the differences in the Gospel of John from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they are profound. There are no exorcisms in the Gospel of John. There are no parables like the parables we find in the synoptic Gospels in the Gospel of John. There are none of the salient Galilean miracles that we find in the Synoptic Gospels, also in John, except the feeding of the 5,000 walking on water tandem. Otherwise, the miracles in the Gospel of John, we just don't find in the Synoptic Gospels, you know. And lo and behold, most of them, the really memorable ones, are set where? In Jerusalem. They're at the Pool of Bethesda. They're at the Pool of Siloam. They're having to do with the raising of Lazarus. They have to do with the man born blind, right? Well, where did all that take place? That all took place in Jerusalem. So I would say that if this is written by an eyewitness, which, in fact, John 19 and 21 claim, right, then it's written by a Judean eyewitness. And interestingly, I mean, for example, Richard Baucom, who there's no more leading authority on Jewish Christianity than Richard, he agrees it must be written by a Jewish Christian in the vicinity of Jerusalem. I think that's exactly right. That's who it's got to be. It's not one of the twelve. It's one of Jesus' Judean disciples, and not not surprisingly, it focuses on Jesus' Judean ministry. This is why we have more trips up to Jerusalem, and we have more focus on the festivals in Jerusalem, and so on. Only in the Gospel of John do we know that Jesus went to Jerusalem at least for two or if if not three Passovers during his ministry. That's Mm -hmm. the only way we know he had about a three-year ministry. Otherwise, I mean, if you just read Mark, you think, well, he was one and done in one year. Wrong. (laughs) Not true. And so, I mean, why should we be surprised that he recruited disciples in Judea as well as in Galilee? Well, I don't think that should surprise us, especially since even the synoptics mention Mary and Martha as disciples of Jesus in Bethany near Jerusalem. Right? So we know, even from the synoptics, there must have been a Judean ministry. And so, uh, I mean, you know, I think when you add these things together, but then, then it, I mean, it clears up so many weird things that otherwise are imponderable. For example, the synoptics tell us none of the twelve was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. They either denied, deserted, or they fled. Right? Now, by contrast, in the Gospel of John, we have the beloved disciples standing at the foot of the cross with Jesus. Well, this is not a problem if the beloved disciple is Lazarus and not one of the twelve. No contradiction, no problem, right? Or take the example of the fact that Peter and the beloved disciple followed Jesus to the house of Caiaphas. And the beloved disciple has an all-access pass into the house of Caiaphas. Well, he must be known by the servants in the house of Caiaphas. How is that even possible? Right? Yeah. So, so, um, the answer is, they attended his funeral. Mm. (laughs) Look at John 11. The Jews are the Jewish officials, and they knew him anyway. They knew this family, right? Right. So there's another little detail that helps you understand what's going on. There are those little kinds of details, but let's go big picture, all right? When Peter and the beloved disciple get to the tomb, Peter scratches his head. He sees nothing but grave clothes. He doesn't see any angels. 
And he goes away puzzled. What does it say about the beloved disciple? He looked in and noticed the absence and the folded up grave clothes and the Texas, and he believed. And then the next line is, though they did not yet know from Scripture that Jesus would rise from the dead. No, Lazarus knew from experience. If it could happen to him, it could happen to Jesus. Aha! (laughs) You know, this is a sort of aha, epiphany moment. Well, that makes better sense. It's not just because he was spiritually perceptive. So was Mary Magdalene, and she didn't figure that out. So, uh, you know, then you get to John 21, and what happens? Now, to me, this is the clincher. Um, Peter, you know, is restored. Threefold restoration. After that, Peter says, well, you know, when he hears that someday somebody is going to bind him and take him where he doesn't want to go, referring to his martyrdom, Peter says, well, what about this man? And Jesus says, if it is my will that he live until I come again, what's that to you? You should follow me. But then we have this parenthetical remark, don't we? Mm-hmm. And what does the parenthetical remark say? Jesus did not say he will live until Jesus comes again. He simply said, if it is my will, conditional statement, right? right. Well, why do you need that disqualifier? Because Lazarus has died again. Of course that's why you need the disqualifier, to explain that Jesus had not falsely predicted that Lazarus was going to live until Jesus came back. That's why you need the disqualifier. So that seems, and, you know, if I'm an ordinary disciple and Jesus has already raised this person from the dead, why wouldn't I think they were going to live till Jesus came back? He's already been raised from the dead once. I'm not an archaeologist, but if I was, I would love to find the tomb of Lazarus. (laughs) It would say, died 29 A.D., and then below that, it would say, died 4280. This would confuse some <laughs> Yeah, that would be interesting. I think both the little indirect evidence and the big internal evidence of the Gospel of John points to the beloved disciple being none other than Lazarus. And uh, another little clincher, since you wanted to talk about the Lord's Supper, is the story in John 13, where we are told that Jesus is reclining with the beloved disciple. Now, here's what we know about ancient meals. The chief guest reclines with the host. So who is the host of that meal in Bethany? Who is the host? It's got to be the beloved disciple. Look back at John 12. Guess what? A meal in the house of Lazarus right? Uh So you have a meal in John 12, you have a meal in John 13, and there's no reason to see one is in a different locale from the other. The second one is involving Jesus and the beloved disciple. This is why I don't think John 13 is about the Passover meal. In fact, the Gospel of John says that this was a meal early in the week of Passover. So, I mean, they probably ate together every night, right? It didn't have to be Thursday night that John 13 took place. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking this was earlier in the week. And uh, so, you know, there, there are these little things. One final thing. There's the annoying anointing story, which is both in John 12 and also in the Gospel of Mark. Now, the one detail that is in Mark that is not in John, otherwise the Johannine account is much more circumstantial, 
is that it took place in the in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Okay, how does that help us? Why did Lazarus prematurely die? Why did that happen? Well, if they had Hansen's disease in that family, I think we know why. And here's another little conundrum. You've got Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, adults, and they're not married. Now, this is unheard of in early Judaism, unless there's a problem. Jews got married when they were teenagers. Why do you have three adults in the house of Mary and Martha who are not married? Because it was known that their father was Simon the leper. And people were afraid, not only of ritual uncleanness, but actual disease. Yeah. So they wouldn't let their sons be engaged to such daughters. That wouldn't happen, you know. So, I mean, it, it explains a lot of the details in the accounts and clears up most of those kinds of mysteries in the Gospel of John. Yeah, I found that whole section a really fascinating uh, bit of historical sleuthing. I think that's what we have to do, you know, with these books, because, as I say, the internal evidence is primary, and later guesses about authorship are secondary. Yep. Well, okay, so let's let's uh, dig into the Lord's Supper a little bit more then. But first, I want to start with a story you told early on. You mention a, a seeker-sensitive church that decides to use Kool-Aid for the Lord's Supper, and one of the yeah. uh, one of the guests says that her favorite thing about the sermon was that they or the service was that they stopped in the middle and had snacks. Now, yeah. I, I'm not ordained, but I'm willing to take your confession today. That can't be a true story. You just made that it up is? to sell books, didn't you? No, sir. It is absolutely a true story. <laughs> I, I wish it was not true. It happened in a mega church yeah. outside of Chicago. Wow. Uh, and and. To his credit, the minister afterwards rethought that whole thing. <laughs> there was an unacceptable image that came into my head. This is my snack given for you. See, the <laughs> real problem is the trivializing of the sacred. Yeah. I take absolutely seriously that the Lord's Supper is a sacred meal. It should be done decently and in order, and I would say it's a means of grace. It's not a means of magic but it's certainly a means of grace. And um, so I think that it should be approached with the proper reverence. And so did Paul. I mean, he says, you know, if you're partaking of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, without discerning the body, you're committing a sacrilege. And that's why some of you got sick and some of you died. Now, that's a pretty shocking statement. Yeah. But what it really means is, of course, that you have to have a sacred approach to the sacraments. Otherwise, you're, you're, you are defiling something that is holy, and that's not a good thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that one of the most powerful witnesses we have to the world is the way that we act in, in unity. Um, you mentioned even that the ancient Romans, when uh, I, I'm going to forget the emperor's name, but the emperor after Constantine that tried to reinstate paganism. Yeah, Julian the Apostate. Yeah, he had to deal with the fact that Christians were known as charitable to the poor and, and all of these things, and the pagan uh, religious side just wasn't. And, and so there, there was a quote in your book that I really liked about that, where you say that uh, in the ancient context, what goes on at meals is supposed to mirror the values that the group upheld. 
Exactly. The way that we treat a meal reflects our deepest held values. And that was certainly true in ancient culture. Ancient culture was a highly stratified, hierarchical thing. And so meals uh, repristinated that whole value system. So the most socially elite people would dine with the hosts, right? And and you would the pecking order would be further down the bench or down the couches to the very end, and and there would even be gradations of food, uh, different food for different of the people at the meal. There's a a famous um, satirist, a Roman satirist, who complains about he meal, a meal he went to, and he was just a mere satirist and poet, so he didn't get to sit with the with the hoi ploy at the head table, and he says Lucius. How is it that I dine with you but dine without you? You are eating wonderful turbo, a famous Roman fish from the Tiber, um, cooked in olive oil, whereas I got a pigeon that died in its cage. How, how can it be that I am dining with you and yet dining without you? So uh, it, it is absolutely true that those meals tried to, if you will, reinforce the basic values and the structure of society. And so what is, of course, shocking about the Christian meal is, is that it breaks down that stratification. And it's, uh, you know, men and women, slaves and free, Jew and Gentile are supposed to all dine together and eat the same stuff, and they are supposed to wait for one another. I really think that's what was going wrong in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, the, the poor people didn't come till after they were done with their work at the end of the day. And by then, the dinner was already in full swing, and the best food had already been eaten. And, and Paul gets all upset. He says, look, you want to eat like that, just then eat at home. But don't turn the Lord's Supper into a pagan feast. Uh, he's, he's incensed about that kind of behavior because the meal is supposed to mirror and reinforce the structure of the body of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it becomes a very powerful event. Uh, near the end of your book, you tell a couple stories. I think both were tour guides, um, one in Italy and one in Turkey and Israel, if I recall, uh, where yep. uh, a sort of former Christian and uh, a Muslim uh, were both sort of emotionally impacted by the group's Lord's Supper ceremony. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm a Methodist. I'm a big believer in John Wesley. And John Wesley believed that the Lord's Supper was not merely a confirming sacrament, it was a converting sacrament. Mm. And he cited any number of examples of people who were prepared on the spot to repent of their sins and receive uh, the forgiveness of God. And, and their first communion, if you will, their first taking of the Lord's Supper, was a transforming moment in their Christian life, the beginning yeah. of their Christian life. And so I certainly believe in that. You know, I, I don't believe that we are called upon to so fiercely fence the table mm. that we rule out the possibility that God could lead somebody to Christ on that spot by inviting them to repent of their sins and become in love and in charity with their neighbor and with God through yeah. the taking of the elements. Uh, I absolutely believe it should be an evangelist, an evangelistic tool. And, uh, and, and the record is clear. Well, when that happens in the early church, in the Middle Ages, and later, people come to Christ. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, one of the, I guess, fascinating things to me thinking about the body of Christ in the Christian community is the sort of fuzziness or porousness of the boundaries. Um, you know, on, yes. on, on one hand, you make a point that there's a difference between, say, baptism, which is a rite of initiation, how you enter a group, and the Lord's Supper, which is more of a ceremony of sustaining the group. Yet, when Christ ate with sinners and tax collectors, um, you know, th that openness to table fellowship with the outcasts and the marginalized of society was a defining aspect of his ministry. And then you point out that even Judas was uh, at the Last Supper. Um, yeah. And so you get a, a community there, but a, a community of <laughs> mixed um, character, perhaps. Well, that's right. And isn't that the nature of congregations anyway? I mean, just because the mouse is in the cookie jar doesn't make them a cookie. <laughs> just because somebody regularly attends the church doesn't make them a Christian. Right. You know, so why should you assume that? And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think here's the thing. Here's what is difficult. If you're going to be an evangelistic um, religion, then your boundaries have to be somewhat porous so you can welcome the stranger. I mean, they have to be. Yeah. You can't be a closed society or a holy huddle that has such strict boundary requirements that the the lost can't get in. I mean, isn't the church supposed to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, aren't we supposed to be seeking and saving the least, the last, and the lost? Come on. Yeah. So, you know, there is a tension between clear group identification and porous boundaries of the community. But that tension disappeared in modernity when evangelism uh, went by the way of, you know, the, the, the horse and buggy. And we decided we were just discipleship institutions that had our missions committee mm. instead of being a missionary movement that also did some discipleship, which is what you have in the New Testament. Yeah. have a missionary movement that also does discipleship. Yeah. Well, maybe we can end with one last story. Um, you talk about the Lord's Supper as being a ceremony that places us into the ancient story so that it becomes our story again. And there was one story you told that uh, really stood out to me. Of uh, it, it seemed like where perhaps you were cast back into the ancient story in a, a slightly unexpected way when you were asked to preach at a church of the brethren. And uh, after the service, went to a, a group meal and sat down to the meal, and then I think it sounds like somewhat unexpectedly one of the um, sort of senior saints of the community knelt down to wash your feet. Yes, and my instinctive reaction was exactly the same of Peter's in John 13. Oh, no, you shouldn't be doing that. If anybody's going to do that, I should be doing that for you. That messes up my mind in terms of honoring my, my elders, right? <laughs> right. And, and, and yet... I mean, for me, it was one of the most humbling experiences I think I've ever had, because it is, if you will, a, bound, a, a breaking down of that sort of stratified thinking and that sort of boundary-created thinking, you know. Uh, and it was it was deeply moving. I mean, I'd sit there. The way the brethren do it is part two is in the basement, in the fellowship hall, whether it's in the basement or somewhere else. And they see it as a continuation of worship, so we have a meal at the end of the worship service together, and that includes foot washing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was it was deeply moving, and not, not part of my tradition at all, 
But, uh, you know, the, the brethren are the dunkers, threefold immersion uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, plus foot washing at the Eucharist. Mm. And uh, that's who they are. And uh, I really appreciated that because I thought, there's something I'm missing. I'd never had my feet washed before. But that really manifests the servant attitude of Christ and the attitude we're supposed to have as well. Yeah, yeah it was a wonderful story. Well, thank you for your time today, Dr. Witherington. I think we're coming up about at time. Um, your okay. book was really a blessing to me, and I hope that uh, it is for the audience as well, and we can all uh, find ways to make a meal of it rather than making a mess of it. As we uh... Well, I, I agree 100%, and I will just say this, that it's, it is part, as you said, of a series. The other one is Troubled Waters, which deals with the sacrament of baptism, and the third book in, in the trilogy is The Living Word of God, which talks about preaching as a sacramental thing. And uh, so if people are interested in looking at all of the so-called Protestant sacraments, um, these three books hopefully would be helpful to them. All right. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. It has been, uh, been great. Until next time. All right. Goodbye. All right. Bye, Jason. Thank you. <laughs>